Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, how are things going? Going good, Preston. As we record this, it's the week of Thanksgiving, and some of us are looking forward to being with our families, and some of us are looking forward to, I guess, staying in our basements. (laughs) Yeah, I think I speak for all of mankind when I say we're ready for this pandemic to be done. I I appoint you spokesman. (laughs) (laughs) So we had an interesting interview today. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was great. We, we spoke with Zach Lancaster, who was one of our colleagues with Bayer Crop Science, and he works with early uh, pipeline chemistries, developing new uh, chemicals to control weeds. Um, we got a little off track talking about rice at the beginning, but I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you're a farmer or a consumer, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this podcast as uh, Zach takes us through the history of this battle that humanity has been engaged in trying to produce food uh, while uh, keeping weeds under control. Yeah, it's been an ongoing battle for years, so we don't need to discuss anymore. Let's just get right into the interview. Let's do it. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Yeah, thank you very much. To kick things off, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I grew up in northeast Arkansas, um, about five hours south of where we are right now in Champaign, Illinois. Um, and I grew up on a rice and soybean farm. So it's a family farm. Um, if I would have stayed around, I would have been a fourth generation farmer there. Um, so yeah, rice and soybeans, we grow about a thousand acres depending on the year. So grew up working on the farm, did my undergrad at Arkansas State University, which is in Jonesboro, Arkansas. It's kind of our hometown school. Um, during that, I also continued working on our family farm and started working for a crop consultant where I scouted crops for a couple of years for him. Um, and then ended up going to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville for uh, graduate school, did graduate school in wheat science. And now I'm in uh, Champaign, Illinois. This is my first year on the job and I work as a uh, field agronomist here. So basically I I work with uh, new uh, pipeline herbicides coming down within Bayer. And what we're really doing is characterizing these for efficacy on different weed species and uh, phyto injury on different crops. So yeah. Nice. So you mentioned rice, rice and farming, yeah. Yeah, yeah. completely different. <laughs> you know, rice, you, you flood the fields, I know. I, I know have some basic knowledge of it, not very much. Is that something you can rotate with soybeans, or if it's a rice field, is it always a rice field? No, uh, yeah, so most rice is grown in a rotation with soybean. Um, the only area where you get in the rice that's not is in a insuitable location for soybeans. So basically there's some spots where rice goes great, grows great because it floods naturally, okay? <laughs> and that's an issue with soybean production. So if you have areas like that, it might be more of a continuous rice uh, crop, which obviously brings its own issues of doing a continuous crop that way. Um, But yeah, so for my family, uh, all of our areas are pretty suitable for that rotation. Um, But you're right, uh, we flood irrigate rice, um, kind of a completely different setup than the Midwestern crops where we're at. Yeah. So does every farmer have a D10 or something like that to build levees and for that flooding? Or well, no. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, you just use a levee plow. It doesn't have to. It's not really, uh, you know, have to have a very large tractor to do that. There's kind of different ways of growing rice. There's like uh, you can do contour levees, which is based off your general fall of the field. Um, you pull levees and you flood patties. Okay. Um, and that's generally, you know, just how the ground lays, okay? 
And then you can also do some groundwork to turn it into zero grade, which means that the whole field is a single grade. So what you'll do then is have a levee with a ditch around the perimeter of the field, and you have no levees within the field. And it all floods up to about the same uh, height there because it's all in the same grade. So that really falls in the areas where it's already very flat to start. Um, and you can do that. And then you can do kind of a, a row. Um, they're kind of coming onto this new type of rice production, which is called row rice, where instead of constantly flooding it, we're irrigating down rows multiple times during the week. So you don't have a constant flood on it, but you're keeping water on it pretty consistently. Um, Do you and it, like it, a laser level with you when you're like looking well, around, or is it pretty <laughs> set over time? Well, yeah, I mean, there can be changes year to year, and you have to kind of check that, you know, just based off tillage, you know, whenever you're running through the field, you can change things. Um, but normally, um, yeah, you can you can tell the small differences and kind of pick up on that. Gotcha. I mean, we, we mostly flood rice to, you know, move into what we're going to talk about more today is weed control. Yeah. Um, rice has been flooded from the beginning for that reason. Um, it really helps in keeping down weeds that can't, you know, they don't like to emerge underwater. It's anaerobic condition. And uh, so, yeah, over, you know, millennium, the yeah. rice has been flooded. And uh, we do it a little bit different in Arkansas than maybe the rest of the world, where it's more of a, a hand transplant kind of system. We do a, a dry seed planting and then flooding after it gets up. But, uh, but yeah, it's a major crop in the world. It's this is a future yeah. podcast topic. Yeah. We're going to have to have you back on just to talk about rice production. Oh, I'd love it because yeah. yeah. I love rice, but I can't so. grow it here, so it's, uh, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, weeds because that probably we should get back on track. We're going to talk about weed control because, uh, yeah, this is, I agree, Preston. This could be fascinating to talk about rice. Speaking of weeds, why, why are weeds a big deal? Why do farmers need to kill weeds? Well, you're, you're really looking at competition. So what weeds do is they compete with our crop for sunlight, nutrients, water, space. And all those kind of can impact your yield as you go through the growing season. So we're trying to knock out that, uh, you know, weed species out there to help our crop grow to its maximum potential. And really uh, what we're looking at is making sure that we start weed-free because if you've ever heard of uh, critical weed-free periods, um, they really start early in crop development. So for soybean and corn, soybean it's like V1 to V3. If you have weeds in the field during that time and prolonged after that, you start seeing yield losses. Um, corn can be from like say V2 to V5. Um, you can kind of weather the storm of having a few weeds out there before that. It it will affect it, but definitely during that period you need to have a pretty weed-free field to maximize yields. Yeah. For the consumers out there, kind of make sense of potential yield loss. Like, do you yes. know any, like, statistics or numbers or, like, what's what's the potential well, worst-case scenario? Well, the worst-case scenario is 100% yield loss. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you guys have probably seen a field that's grown up completely with weeds. You can see the crop yeah. barely out there, right. and you're looking at 100% yield loss. It might not... It, you know, the crop might still have grain out there, but how do you harvest it at that point? Right. And so you, you come into all these different nutrients and things that weeds can take up, but you also look at impediment to harvesting because if you have such weed pressure out there, you, you might not even be able to run a combine through it. So you can look at 100% um, pretty easily. I mean, absolutely. Definitely, with, you know, weed resistance issues. I'm sure you guys have seen areas where they tried to 
control it one way and it completely <laughs> failed. And, and then you can have that 100% yield loss. Absolutely. So humans have been battling weeds since the dawn of mankind. Yeah. Um, I'm still in that battle at my own garden <laughs> every year. Um, can you kind of walk us through the history of maybe like mechanical weed control to where yeah. you went into like the herbicide use? So yeah, you kind of, you sent out the invite for this and kind of talked about, you know, history of weed control and it kind of got me thinking about, you know, different ways that we've controlled weeds um, over time and starting off, it's kind of neat to go back and just look at, you know, the Bible as a historical reference okay. because obviously you can go back 2,000 years or more and see what people were talking mm-hmm. about their landscape. Mm-hmm. And there's areas within the Bible, I kind of uh, printed off a couple here that was pretty neat. Um, one passage it said, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles and the surface was covered with nettles. So you can see that they were conscious of weed species back then, even weed identification, you're talking about thistles and nettles, which is something that we deal with around here too, still. Um, And then there's some other parables about sowing weed-free seed within the Bible. And so it was an understanding of people even back then that you had to control weeds and try to keep your fields clean. Um, And so back then you're really looking at cultural and mechanical practices for controlling weeds. So you're looking at hand weeding mostly. And maybe culturally you're looking at um, they're trying different row spacing of planting densities and stuff to try to cover up because they understood if they got a good emergence and a good coverage of crops, it can hold back weeds. Right. So you're looking at a lot of uh, hand weeding. Um, we were talking about rice earlier. And uh, the reason that they flood irrigate is to minimize the amount of weeds out there. And one thing that I think we're going to cover quite a bit in this podcast is the ability of not just weed species, I guess, but anything to overcome whatever um, selection pressure you have on it. So within rice, we were doing hand weeding for millennial. Uh, One of our biggest weed species in rice is barnyard grass. Well, it developed mimicry of rice to look exactly mm. like rice so it would be transplanted out there with the rice plants and and grow up and compete. So you're looking at species that are overcoming uh, selection pressure where we might think as chemical uh, herbicides is where that selection pressure, but they can overcome any kind of pressure you assert to them. Right. So, so yeah, mechanical uh, hand weeding back in the day. Um, I got to be, be interested about like when did the first chemical uh, yeah. herbis- like weed control options start? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about like the Roman Empire. Okay, if you could think about the Romans salting the fields of their enemies. Um, and really, if you break down what the description of a weed is, it's a plant growing out of place. So for them, uh, trying to conquer new lands, <laughs> they might have saw the crops of their enemies as a plant growing out of place. It's yeah. it's not something yeah. we don't do now militarily whenever we, <laughs> uh, in different theaters of war with crops and things. But, um, so they were using salt at very high rates to make mm-hmm. their fields uh, ininhabitable to plants. And they you can almost tie that into a weed control yeah. as the first like chemical, that they understood that there were certain compounds that would get up to a toxic level and inhibit plant growth. Yeah. So that's what we're doing, just in a different way nowadays. Um, but yeah, uh, and it really took off our modern weed control with chemical 
components in the 1940s. I'm sure y'all talked about in different arenas, not just weed control, but pesticides that, yeah. you know, that World War II timing was huge in the development. Um, so they were developing different pesticides to be used during war. And they realized that they developed this one um, group of compounds called auxins. So and that's what 2,4-D falls under. So auxins within a plant kind of are a pheromone that tell the plant to grow, basically. And we can overload the plant with these different synthetic auxins within them, and it can inhibit growth. So they developed 2,4-D in early 1940s, and by the end of World War II, it was um, first available um, to farmers, I think like 1946, 1947. Um, so it was a revolution in weed control. It's one of the compounds that we rely on today still. And I kind of looked up one thing. It's, it's really neat to see how people wrote about things back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So this was in 1947. A Nebraska farmer um, described how he had cuckleberries in the cornfield, and they got ahead of his cultivation. So they were outgrowing his corn. And he said the weeds were about as tall as the corn in the rows. And he said one spring of these cucklebirds with 2,4-D ended their earthly pilgrimage. <laughs> so yeah, I, love, I wish we could, we could say things like, you know, right like right. that uh, right. nowadays. Yeah. But you can see how that was a, a game changer for these people um, yeah. to bring on that uh, synthetic chemicals and be able to use it. Because you look at the 1940s, you have 2,4-D with the auxins coming out. 1950s, you have triazines, which are atrazine, which is highly relied upon chemical nowadays, as you know, in corn. So if you're just comparing early 1940s corn production to early 1950s, now you have 2,4-D and atrazine. And those two products, you know, are a game changer in corn production. So in what way did it change? Well, well so, so you're looking at 2,4-D, which is a dicot specific herbicide. So corn's a monocot, a grass. Dicots are broadleaf species. So you can use it selectively within corn to control your dicot species. So there you have that. Atrazine is also safe within corn, but it also is covering some of your monocot species too, also dicots, and has residual activity, which is a, a process of, of herbicides that inhibit seed growth, basically, and inhibit uh, weeds coming up. So you're looking at two products which, putting them together, you can really foresee having a weed-free crop within corn, especially back whenever that was the new things on the block and there wasn't any kind of issues with those herbicides at that point in time. So yeah, it's it a revolution in, in weed control. Farmer workload had to just like be cut in half as soon as those things well, came on. Exactly, and it's it's thing it's it's going on today where you you know if, if you take statistics of back in the day, how many people had to be on the farm to produce a certain amount of crop, and uh, nowadays it's reduced to a crazy extent compared because we have all these new technologies that allow us to produce crops more efficiently. So yeah, it was it completely changed the game, absolutely. So you gave a couple of examples there of what what we would term selective herbicides. So they don't kill the crop, but right. they kill the specific weed species. Right. Now there there are also non-selective herbicides. Exactly. Um, so so we've gotten to the 60s or the 50s with atrazine, and that is a selective herbicide. 
So in the 70s, you really had the game changer of glyphosate, which is Roundup. It's a non-selective herbicide. So non-selective means that it's generally going to kill every species you spray it on. Um, like your salt example. Like the salt example. Um, it would have been a non-selective. So with glyphosate, we were at that time, we were using it primarily as a burn down herbicide, so something you're going to spray early in the season to kill all species out there, plant, and then you have a weed free crop to start on. Kind of goes back to that critical weed free period we mm -hmm. spoke about. Um, and so those are very important herbicides. And then what we can do with non selective herbicides is develop traits within a crop to make a crop resistant to them. And then that opens up a whole new ball game because you're able, your crop's able to tolerate this herbicide application while all the weeds out there with this non-selective herbicide will be controlled. So yeah, it's a complete game changer in how you apply herbicides, the, the timing of herbicides. So, so really before, you know, we're really getting into like the Roundup Ready technologies, the glyphosate resistant technologies in the 1990s. And that just completely changed how you had to rely on, at that time, multiple residual herbicides to try to control things. Multiple se different selective herbicides. Now you have this one herbicide that controlled things. And I think we're gonna get into the issues with, with doing that. But um, at that time, you know, nothing had ever been seen like that. Um, it was, it was uh, again, another revolution in agricultural practices. And we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about it, but you, you briefly mentioned residual herbicides. So those yep. will be herbicides that you put down before the weeds germinate and they control them from even coming out of the ground. Exactly. Right? And, and those, you know, a lot of people might think of a residual herbicide as just something you put down pre-emergence of a crop. But that's something that going forward, we're going to have to more rely upon in both pre-emergence applications along with our post-emergence herbicides, we need to incorporate those as well. Um, because if you're keeping a, a weed from ever emerging from the ground, you're reducing the amount of weeds in the field and the amount of potential selection pressure that you're putting on it. So um, if it never comes up, then it's not potentially selecting for resistance to your post-emergence herbicides. So what we're really having to do is some, we have very few post-emergence herbicides to utilize. Mm -hmm. We need to use these residual herbicides along with those to protect all of them. Because if you're attacking a weed from multiple different directions, you keep it kind of off balance and it can't ever develop a singular resistance to one, uh, one thing you're doing. If you're doing multiple things, it makes it much more difficult for it to develop resistance and be an issue going forward. Now that we're on the resistance topic, do you want to spend a few minutes maybe discussing the history of herbicide resistance in the yeah. modern cropping system? So yeah, herbicide resistance really took off, I would say in the 80s pretty much, um, because we were incorporating these herbicides called uh, ALS herbicides. So that's a group two herbicide. They're a selective herbicide for crop use, but they have a higher tendency of um, developing herbicide resistance within weeds. They're just a little bit easier to overcome with maybe one uh, change within the plant uh, genetics. Um, so what we were seeing with these ALS herbicides, which we heavily relied upon in that time frame, 
Um, that would be like Scepter and Pursuit back then. They were used a lot in soybean production. Um, you, you have what you call uh, target site resistance where it's just one, cha one change in like the binding site of a herbicide onto the plant cell. Um, one change within that makes it to where it doesn't bind efficiently and it doesn't have effect on that plant. So with those herbicides, we're seeing ALS resistance pick up pretty quick. And then in the 90s, we got more into different kinds of resistance. Um, we started using the Roundup Ready crops, you know, throughout, basically. I took a huge market share. And it kind of covered up some of the resistance issues we were having at the time because it was controlling everything. Well, then in the early 2000s, we start seeing resistance to glyphosate. And that becomes another game changer because now, it's just like we're using herbicides in, in our crops and glyphosate resistant crops. Um, it really helped our crops grow. Well now you're helping the weed grow that's resistant to it because now all it has to compete with is the crop and you know none of the other weeds there. So you're creating a perfect system for some of these glyphosate resistant weeds to really take off. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, herbicide resistance is kind of the arms race that we have with weed species. We bring upon a new herbicide option and we're trying to protect it from herbicide resistance because once that develops, then you have to go in a completely new direction generally. It's a constant, constant battle with them. There's different types of resistance. So one thing we were talking about was target site resistance. There's another type of resistance which is called non-target site. So it might be that within a plant that herbicide enters and the plant sequesters it to within an area within the plant where it doesn't injure it. Or it might be to where the most, uh, I guess, concerning resistance would be metabolic resistance where it, it metabolizes these herbicides at a very high rate and breaks them down. And we're really concerned as an industry with metabolic herbicide resistance because one thing that it can do is if it develops metabolic resistance to one herbicide, it might also confer resistance to completely different herbicides, completely different modes of action. And it can also confer resistance to herbicides we haven't even developed yet, modes of actions we, we haven't even brought upon. Because a lot of these different toxins within a plant are broken down in the same metabolic pathways. So going forward, where we're really gonna fight hard is learning about this new metabolic or like metabolic resistance and learning how to best control it and best uh, keep it back because we obviously don't want to develop herbicides that are obsolete mm -hmm. whenever we put them out on the market the first day. So it costs a lot of money to develop this. costs a huge amount of money to bring a pesticide to market, you know, <laughs> and we're banking as a company whenever we bring these is to have years and years of viable per, uh, use of that herbicide. And if you bring it out, it can uh, it can really hamper its use for sure if it's already resistant to it. So a lot of this that you're talking about can be a little bit difficult to wade through if you don't have a scientific background or if yeah. you're not, you know, when we talk about metabolic resistance and target site resistance and different things. And you mentioned before, I think you referenced group two herbicides. And one way that farmers uh, are able to kind of weed through some of this is herbicides have been classified into groups, right? Exactly. So farmers can use different groups, multiple groups, to help 
uh, delay the resistance that the weeds would develop. Exactly. So basically we have uh, groups of herbicides from 1 up to 27. There might not be a, a herbicide in each specific group that's very common, but there's multiple different herbicides that act in different ways within a plant. Um, and so what we're trying to do is overlay multiple different herbicide modes of action on these different weed species. And that, again, makes it very difficult for a weed to overcome that uh, mode of those, or to develop a new uh, weed resistance. Now, but we have to understand what different weed resistances we have out there right now. Because there's multiple, there's some species that might have resistance to multiple different modes of action. So just saying, hey, I'm putting out these three different modes of action might not be uh, effective if the, res the weeds are resistant to two of them. Now you're only using one effective mode of action and it's again selecting resistance for that new one. So we have to understand our weed biology and what it is resistance to, resistant to as well as our herbicide terminology basically of what different groups we can use and try to develop the best plan for control of these different species. For sure. Yeah. We talked a little bit about like the Roundup Ready phase of history in the yeah. 90s. Maybe do you want to speak a little bit to like then to now how we've started to develop soybean tolerance to other herbicide modes of action and then where we're at now kind of with our Extend Flex? Absolutely. Wow. So everything was going through Roundup Ready or glyphosate tolerant crops in the early 2000s. Um, then we started developing herbicide resistance. Okay. So there was a need for new crop tolerances out on the market. So you really see the probably the first one that comes after Roundup Ready is Liberty Link technology that's resistant to glufosinate, which is a different mode of action from glyphosate. Um, nowadays, you're starting to get into the different oxen-resistant technologies. So Extend would be resistant to dicamba, and List would be resistant to 2,4-D. And so we need to utilize these different technologies to control these different resistant weed populations that we have. And going forward, um, as you guys know, the, that Extend Flex was recently approved for use. And that's going to be uh, our tolerance system, which is resistant to glyphosate, dicamba, and glufosinate. So you're looking at three different herbicides, three different herbicide modes of action that crop is resistant to, and something that we can really build a uh, robust weed control plan around to try to, one, effectively control our, our weeds in the field, and two, to continually reduce the development of herbicide resistance as we go forward if we utilize these multiple modes of action. Yeah. So being a weed scientist, what, what's your message to farmers when you, when you think about, like, protecting the longevity of, of technologies like these, like with ExtendFlex, for instance, yeah. um, what recommendations would you have for, for farmers? So, yeah, we're, we're going based off of what we have, the resistance mechanisms we have within ExtendFlex. And we also have to go off of the herbicide label that goes with these products. So we understand that there are restrictive uh, requirements for the use of dicamba in crop. Um, in these different areas. There's been issue with off-target movement of dicamba. So what we, we can do with the Extend Flex is to utilize maybe glyphosate and dicamba in a burn-down application because 
with that crop being resistant, then we don't have the same plant back timing restrictions to those applications. So we can use Roundup, Extend, and a residual in our early burn down pre-emergence. And we're really seeing some good usage out of dicamba there as well. And then we can also maybe use dicamba in our early post-emergence. So what we're trying to utilize dicamba with is early in the season before temperatures get really high, before um, there's a lot of uh, sensitive crops maybe around the field that you're spraying, is, a, is really the perfect time to utilize dicamba. Because now we can utilize that and we don't have as high a risk of off-target movement. And we can try to use it in the best way possible. But what having inserting that glufosinate tolerance allows us to do is to use another mode of action of a herbicide maybe later in the season where you might be past the dicamba cutoff of the label, which is the law regarding the use of these herbicides. Maybe you can use glufosinate later to provide that second post-emergence application and get a completely weed-free field, um, which is what we're, you know, if you're utilizing glyphosate, dicamba, glufosinate, which is Liberty, you're really putting up a robust system along with maybe some of the other pre-emergence herbicides that we have on the market today. So you're overlaying so multiple. Don't just wait till the weeds are 14 inches. Absolutely. Know you have this awesome technology. Absolutely. Really clear it out. Absolutely. Because yeah. what, what you're doing there is you're trying to spray it on a, a weed species that's more robust and easier to overcome a herbicide application. So maybe that weed species has a slight level of resistance in it. If you apply it, you know, when it's really small, maybe one to three inches tall or so, then it can't overcome that application. But if it's 14 inches tall, then it might, you know, just the size of that weed and the light resistance that it has, it can overcome it. And maybe it's developing the level of resistance as it produces more progeny, more seed. So we want to be making these applications at the, you know, the specified times on the label because that gives us the best chance or most effective weed control and the best chance for reducing our resistance issues going forward. Cool. Yeah. And you mentioned using dicamba early and there's a couple of, I think, interesting points there. One is there's some level of residual activity from that dicamba, which maybe growers don't often give it credit for or maybe fully understand. And another point is that when it's sprayed early before the temperature conditions would be more conducive to it moving to another field, um, is why we want to spray it early and then also it's been commonly used in corn for the last um you tell me how long you're the yeah you're yeah the i mean it's, it was it was fairly close after uh the 240 i think you're looking in the 50s maybe that dicamba was developed so you're able to use it in the timing that best fits that technology if we go back to residual herbicides of the pre-emergence timing when we're adding dicamba in there we're really seeing a bump just residual, not looking at post-emergence weeds that are already right. up. We're only talking about things that are emerging after that herbicide application. We're seeing a bump in residual activity to our common residual herbicides if we add dicamba to them. So it really does have a fit there, especially if you're trying to use it in a burn down pre-emergence all-in-one kind of application there. Um, it really works good. And then again, we're, we're able to maybe then use it in our first post-emergence application early in the season. So if we look at Illinois and our last year's regulations just as a baseline, uh, we don't have the new regulations for this coming up year, but they made extra 
um, restrictions on the label to where you couldn't apply dicamba in air temperatures above 85 degrees and you couldn't apply it after June 20th. Okay, so what they're trying to do is keep dicamba from being applied in a situation where it has the highest chance of moving off target. We're trying to keep it used in an early timing to, you know, because we, we don't want this product to move away from its target. We don't want to injure other crops, injure our neighbors, you know, trees, vegetables, all these different things. We want the product to stay right wherever we apply Absolutely. to. And so if we use it in that early timing, we're reducing our chance of off-target movement. And you're following the label, which again is the law that pertains to applying these herbicides. So this has been an interesting conversation where time is kind of going on here a little bit, but there's a couple more questions I think we'd like to ask you. One is, can you talk a little bit about your role in developing new herbicides and some of the things that are maybe coming? Yeah, sure. So again, I deal with very early kind of investigation of these different chemicals. So what they're doing is within Bayer, we're you know, synthesizing these chemicals over in, in Germany. They're looking at it earlier than me in a greenhouse and kind of looking at what different species it controls. And then they're going to send it out to their field-based uh, scientists, which is what I'm going to be doing. Um, and I'll look at it on our weed species that's normal to this area and also our crop species. So, you know, I'm probably, I'm looking at corn and soybean mainly for the phyto level within the crop. I'm also looking at, you know, our amaranthus species, different grass species, maybe velvet leaf, ragweeds, different things that might be common around here um, for control wise. So we're really building up a, I guess, portfolio on these products to determine, is it actually better than maybe what we have on the market? currently because we don't want to bring a product out that's not going to compete with what we have, you know, because that's not going to help anybody. And we also want to just determine where it fits. And so while I'm doing the crop sensitivity, weed efficacy work, there's multiple other areas within our company that's maybe doing the toxicology work. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we take a large amount of different compounds and we kick out the ones that fail our different tests. So maybe it fails my weed control test, maybe it fails our toxicology tests, our environmental impact tests. And so we're trying to funnel it down to these the small amount of compounds that we can potentially push forward and commercialize. So really what I'm doing is I'm knocking out products as they come to me because we want to keep the best ones moving forward. How many potential compounds have to be screened before a commercially viable product is found. Oh, it's, it's, it's huge. I, have, I don't have an idea because I have no idea how many of them get screened out yeah. before they even get to me, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty early in the, in the whole series of events there, but, but there's, there's probably tons over in the, in the greenhouse that get screened out because kind of what you do is maybe within a company, you, you develop a new chemical structure and we understand that that has uh, some kind of effect on different plants. Okay, we see that in a greenhouse. Then what we're going to do is we're going to add on other smaller chemical structures, different groups onto that and see how that affects it. So they're they're trying out all kinds of different things. And yeah, it might be thousands of... That's a, I, yeah. I, I'm not trying to pin you down, but I mean, I was just you could almost say tens of thousands. Yeah, it's, it's, fairly safe. it's a huge amount. Yeah. Just, just to maybe get to a couple that come out within... Of millions or yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. in the process. Yeah, yeah. It's, you have to be very specific on what you're doing for sure. Yeah. 
So we started this conversation out. You referenced some 2,000-year-old quotes, guys have been battling <laughs> yeah. a weed pressure for thousands of years. We've, we're kind of in a sweet spot now, a short sweet spot, where 90% of the population doesn't live on a farm. They're not out actively hoeing weeds. Are you optimistic when you think about the future of weed control? Do you think that like you're working in future technology, do you think that a lot of this stuff is going to you know, keep being pumped out, or are you pessimistic? Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely optimistic. We didn't really cover it, but when Roundup Ready was really taken off and had a huge lion's share of, of the acres that were growing, it was kind of the, the why. And developing new chemistry to try to compete with that was kind of a fool's errand at the time. So now where you see that there's resistance issues with glyphosate and we need to use other technologies, the machine of developing these new technologies is back up and running now. So, you know, not just Bayer, but other companies are developing completely new herbicide options. So just in a chemical sense, you have to be optimistic of the new products that's coming down the pipeline. But we can't look at this in a narrow view and just think that weed control is always going to be only chemical because we're just going to fall into the same pitfalls that we've already done. So, you know, we really can utilize new technologies. Um, I think one of the first places to really see this kind of new era of weed control would be in like Australia. So in Australia, they, they grow a lot of wheat and they have ryegrass that's basically resistant to any post-emergence herbicide option they can have um, to control that species in certain areas within Australia. So they're having to move into a completely different system, kind of a, a real zero tolerance of weeds in your field system. Because whenever that weed grows, it produces seeds, then you increase the soil seed bank and you're increasing the amount of pressure weeds will put on your field. So what they're really doing is doing harvest weed seed control along with their herbicides and different cultural and mechanical practices. So what they're doing is using a kind of a seed destructor that goes onto a combine. And whenever those seeds come into the combine, it's destroying them. So whenever it comes back out, you have a very low amount of viable seed that's going back into the weed seed bank. Yeah. So if you keep knocking back this weed seed bank, you're knocking back the amount of weeds that you're going to have to deal with in the future. So they're doing the harvest weed seed control. Also, there's this new move into using different technologies, robotics, to control weeds. So there's, there's this company called uh, Blue River, which was bought by John Deere a couple years ago. And what they're doing is developing a system which pulls through the, the field. It uses smart learning, like facial recognition that you might be used to on uh, Facebook that maybe can tag your friends. It understands who that person is. Um, they're doing the same thing with weed species. So as this smart sprayer is going through the field, it's analyzing the area, it's identifying these weed species, and it's making a precision application of a herbicide directly to that species. So instead of making a broadcast application where you're spraying the entire field and really is less effective or less efficient because you're spraying a ton of area that's not actually the weed, okay? Right. Now you're making an individual application on a weed species. And where that takes us into the next level is maybe we, are, we develop a herbicide that might be cost prohibitive to spray across the entire field. Mm -hmm. But if you're spraying it on a specific weed, you can maybe use these 
gold-plated, I guess what you'd call herbicides, that you maybe use at a 1,000 one rate for the whole acre because um, you're only spraying in a very small space and you can keep that where it normally would have been kicked out because of economics, you're able to use a new herbicide on that. And it might not even be herbicides. It might be, uh, you know, I think they're developing maybe lasers that right. shoot weeds and stuff off of, off of the system that's identifying as you pull through the field. And it really, I think there's room for hope whenever you go using these new technologies, different ways for looking at weed control. It's not just spraying a post-emergence herbicide across the entire field um, where we can keep these species off balance and not developing. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, like the movie Jurassic Park where you had like what Jeff Goldblum, he was like the eccentric uh, scientist that went to the, yeah. the Jurassic Park and he basically says, you know, life will find a way. <laughs> That's what we're trying to true. Yeah. combat as we go through with weed resistance is life finding a way. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to keep it as off balance as possible, use multiple different techniques for controlling weeds. And I think there's, there's some really good work in it that's not just herbicide. Maybe, you know, it's, it's not just that, you know, robotic sprayer. I'm saying, Come you know. Drops. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, where we were used to using glyphosate tolerant crops where everything was controlled, we didn't worry about doing this. But now where we have issues with that and we understand that we have to steward these technologies better, maybe we are putting a cover crop down that is acting almost like a secondary residual herbicide. Because what it does is, it, these weeds are smart, okay? They understand not to emerge whenever there's another crop or another plant up there that's gonna overtake it. Because that's just wasting its lifespan, basically. So what weeds are doing are, there's different um, germination kind of requirements that happen. One of those is gonna be lot penetration. So whenever sunlight comes through maybe a cover crop species, that is covering the ground, it changes the wavelength of that lot. And a weed can understand whenever it's catching a certain wavelength that there's coverage out there and I shouldn't emerge right now. So that's what we can utilize cover crops for, is to kind of mm -hmm. tell the weeds that, hey, there's something else up here that maybe you won't be able to grow up through. And it keeps it from germinating completely. Now, we've kind of bred some of these traits out of our crops, so whenever we have cover crops out there, it, does, you know, it doesn't affect them in the same way that it does weed species. But that's one way that we can utilize another coverage that is, again, reducing our amount of weeds coming up, uh, reducing the pressure that these weeds are putting on our herbicides that we then have to steward at the highest cost. Because we've seen, we've lost, we lost one of our greatest, well, we haven't lost it completely, it's still useful glyphosate is, but not, I mean, whenever it was in the heyday, it was amazing. It was the best herbicide ever developed. And we've learned some hard lessons on lacking of stewardship of that technology. And, and we're really working as an industry to develop new ways to protect these herbicides and use multiple different ways to control weeds. Just really thinking outside of the box now is, is uh, the thing going on. Glyphosate combined with Roundup Ready crops is the ultimate easy button, and everybody oh, just yeah. got lazy. And hey, this is easy. This works and you, you, until you, it didn't. Yeah, you had you had growers, um, you know, that they didn't have to put out a pre-emergence herbicide or residual herbicide because glyphosate was controlling it all. They they realize, you know, people even realized that glyphosate had a lower rate 
was controlling these things. And so you really had some bad... four inch weed. Yeah, yeah you, you really had... to wait until the weeds got big enough. Well, there's not quite enough weeds up out there. Exactly. We're going to wait to go spray. You know, they saw it as it's not worthy of my herbicide application <laughs> yet because there's not enough of them out there. That is the absolute worst thing you could do uh, for weed resistance. So, yeah, going forward, we understand maybe some of the pitfalls and we're learning constantly every day of how to develop these these new ways for control that don't rely on one selection mechanism. Because if you rely on one thing, it's going to overcome it. It's just a matter of time. But if we do multiple things, we can, you know, go in a sustainable program going forward that lasts for, you know, many years. 2,000 years. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we have to have it last because it's, it's, what, yeah. Yeah. it's what we rely on. Right. Well, we're glad that we have people like you in the industry who are excited and continuing that fight. So we appreciate you joining us here today for the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. It was, it was a ton of fun. So, Zach, if people want to learn more about this topic, is there a way they can interact with you or with a website they can go to and learn some more about some of this? Yeah, I mean, there's there's ton of options out there. I think, you know, one of the, the best ways to for a, a farmer questioning these kind of things like this is to rely upon your you know local extension service because that's what you know they're they're really there to help put out information for the betterment of, of farmers so they are doing a lot of work you know just like industry you know extension is doing a ton of work in the, in this field and i think that that might be you know that's one of the best options but uh but yeah i mean there's your industry reps that you you deal with you know talk with them. They'll, they'll talk through these type of things with you. And I guarantee you, if they don't know the answer to maybe one of your issues, they know somebody who does and they'll, they'll get back in touch with you. So, you know, that, that's one thing is I feel like going forward is, is to not be proud of what you, what you think, you know, and try to get the best information out to, to farmers. Because again, we're, we're fighting a, a battle with these, these weeds and uh, we need to use all the ammunition we can use. That's great advice for us all. (laughs) (laughs) The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.